This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we go to our time of study, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance in our prayer today. Father, we're thankful that we can come together to study your word today. We're thankful that it is in your word that we understand what true freedom is. The true freedom ultimately is a spiritual freedom that is grounded in that which has taken place because of Christ's work upon the cross. That when we believe in Christ as Savior, immediately we are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this frees us from the dominion, the power, the, the tyranny of the sin nature, and it enables us to live in a new way uh, in service to you. But, Father, we still struggle with sin. We still fight. We still have the sin nature within us, and so there's a constant struggle. The only way to overcome that is through uh, a constant attention to our spiritual life, attention to your word, and a dedication to implement uh, your word in our lives. Father, we're also mindful today that we have another kind of freedom that we celebrate at this time in terms of Veterans Day tomorrow, a political civil freedom that we have that was bequeathed to us by our founders and for the many who have been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice by serving in this nation's uh, military, the different branches of military, in order to uh, secure our land, that these freedoms that we have, that we enjoy, might continue from generation to generation, each generation needing to fight to secure freedom once again uh, for the next generation. And, Father, we pray for this nation, for our leaders. We pray for our military. We pray for those who, especially from this congregation, who are serving many and serving overseas, some in places of where they are in harm's way. Pray that you would watch over them, but above all, that their lives would be a reflection of your grace and that they might have opportunities to communicate the gospel and to minister to others. And we pray that you would watch over them. And, Father, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Today is the birthday of the United States Marine Corps. We have any Marines here? Any Marine veterans here? One in the back. Yeah, Jess. November the 10th, 1775. And it was about six or seven months later I've come to learn that one of my ancestors in a direct line joined the one of the early units of the Marine Corps. Later, after the War for Independence, he went to seminary and then he became the first chaplain in the Navy. Alan ought to like that, since we sang the Navy hymn this morning. But um, I got a whole stack of uh, 
of uh, genealogical research that had been done on my dad's side of the family back in the 20s and the 30s. And, and as I read through it, of course, and, and it was added to during the time of uh, World War II, and as I read through that, there was a listing of just, you know, individual after individual after individual who was serving in the military during World War II. And I was amazed. I, I think there was there was maybe one person uh, who served in the Army. All of the others served in either the Navy or, or the Marine Corps. So I guess that that ran true in my family. One reason maybe my, my dad was in the Marine Corps. But we celebrate the birth of the United States Marine Corps today, and then tomorrow uh, we have Veterans Day to honor all of those who have served in our uh, nation's military. Uh, on November the 11th, 1918, at 11 o'clock in the morning, the armistice, which ended World War One, was signed, and that, uh, for many years, November 11th was celebrated as Armistice Day. And then, uh, after World War II, it uh, became known and uh, by act of Congress as Veterans Day, as a day to honor all those who have served in our military and we need to continue to honor them for their willingness to serve and their willingness to uh, give their life, if necessary, to preserve, uh, to preserve our freedoms. Now, this morning, we're focusing on that which preserves our ultimate freedom, which is the work of Christ. We're studying his life in the Gospel of Matthew, so open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to look at three verses this morning, Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. These are not easy verses to understand or comprehend, and they are verses that have often been taken out of context and misunderstood. And so some of our time this morning is just trying to clarify what the issues are in these, in these verses. Uh, uh, the focus of these three verses is really on the center verse in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, which, wherein John the Baptist announces and prophesies that one will come after him who will baptize uh, by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. So the focal point here is on these two baptisms, but that's within a context of a warning, uh, the warning of verse 10 and the warnings of verse 11, which focus on uh, coming judgment, that we live in a world that is not independent. It is under the authority of God and eventually there will be judgment. There have been several uh, famous sermons uh, preached on, on uh, the topic of judgment. There was a famous southern uh, pastor back in the early part of the 20th century named R.G. Lee. I always liked the name of his sermon, Payday Someday. There's an accounting for everyone at some point in the future. The other famous sermon you may have even read in a in a literature class, as I did in college, and of course my English professor didn't get anything right about it because they don't understand Puritan theology or the doctrine of homardiology or sin in the scripture, and that is the sermon by Jonathan Edwards that was one of the uh, sermons that started the first great awakening uh, entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So this emphasis on judgment is one that 
John the Baptist is bringing to his Jewish audience. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, which hasn't quite begun yet, but at this point, the focus is on Israel. Everything that we understand at this point in the, the Gospels is a ministry that is focused on Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. So that when John shows up on the scene and he begins to proclaim his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it meant something to his recipients. They had, they were schooled in Old Testament prophecy and an understanding of this concept of repentance, that it wasn't simply a feeling sorry for sin. As I pointed out last time, it's not focused on emotion. It is focused on really the uh, core idea is turning, turning away from the false gods and idols of paganism and turning to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the idea of repentance was something that was understood within Israel, the need to turn. And with that turning, there wasn't simply an sort of an academic or abstract understanding or belief in God, but it resulted in a change in in life. It was it was not to be divorced from that. And the idea of repentance was wasn't just a one shot decision because each and every day that had to be reaffirmed because there was a change in a core change in life's direction. So they understood that what repentance was. That wasn't a term that John had to explain. When Jesus uh, says basically the same thing in the beginning of his ministry, he doesn't have to explain to his audience what repentance is. When he sends out his disciples proclaiming the same thing, he doesn't have to explain that because his audience understood its meaning because they were they were schooled in the Old Testament. Now, we live in a time when people today are not very well schooled in Old Testament theology, and so we always have to take a lot of time explaining this. Uh, not only because we don't understand the Old Testament context, but also because it's been so distorted. The emphasis on repentance is feeling sorry for your sin, turning away from sin. That wasn't the focal point, as we saw last time, in looking at various passages. It is a call from God to his audience to turn to him. And so it is a call from John the Baptist to the nation to turn, but it is not just nation. He has a twofold uh, approach here, and something we have to understand that he's not only addressing and seeking a national turning to God uh, in preparation for the arrival of the kingdom, but it also entails on the part of many an individual turning away from paganism or away from the legalism of the religious uh, establishment of that time, uh, turning away from that and turning uh, to God in acceptance of, uh, of the gospel message, the grace gospel. And so this, this is really a, he's got a twofold audience here. He's addressing the corporate uh, entity of Israel, but he is also, ex- he's also addressing uh, individuals uh, within the nation and their need to get right with God. But then again, in a third way, he is addressing those who perhaps were Old Testament saints, they were believers, but they were living in apostasy, either legalistic apostasy or in some form of licentious or immoral apostasy. So it's a loaded term, uh, and it's calling upon his recipients to to turn from whatever 
position in life they're in, either as an unbeliever or as a disobedient believer, or as a believer to turn and to change the course and direction of their thinking and their life uh, because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. If the kingdom of heaven is going to arrive, if this uh, political kingdom that would be led by a descendant of David, the messianic king, if that were going to come into effect, uh, it can only come into effect if the people of God, which is a term that at this point would refer to Israel, that if they were obedient to the Mosaic laws, I pointed out last time, this was the thrust of the Mosaic law, not just uh, cor- correctly affirming uh, the existence of God and their uh, their identification with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but as the book of Deuteronomy repeats over and over and over again, uh, they are to be obedient. Uh, Moses says again and again, uh, they are to love the, their, the Lord their God and obey him in every area of life. So there's, there's not a disconnect between turning to God and obeying him. The, the two were understood to go together. What had happened in Judaism, in the develop of early Judaism following the exile, uh, in the, in this period, which is called the Second Temple period, with the development of Pharisaism, uh, you had a superficiality that, that entered in, a religiosity, whereas if you just sort of went through your religious checklist and did the things that they, they said to do which were external, then you were good to go because as long as you were Jewish, as long as you were a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you really were guaranteed entrance into the kingdom. It didn't depend on your behavior. It just as long as you were Jewish, that got you in. But if you wanted to get anything else, then then you needed to follow their, the religious checklist. So that was the external religiosity of, of the Pharisees. Now, when John is out in the... In the country, in the wilderness, we often think of wilderness maybe in terms of something that's uh, uh, forested, but in Israel it's desert. But another way to understand that term is in contrast to the city. In fact, the term wilderness is used in several places in the Old Testament, not as some barren wasteland, but just in terms of the country where you where it was populated by many small uh, villages, and farms, and uh, rural area, and that's the emphasis on the ministry of John. He doesn't come from the city, didn't come from Jerusalem, which was dominated by the religious aristocracy, but he came from the country. He came from the rural areas. He was not uh, trained in the, 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 the yeshivas of the Pharisees, but he's trained uh, on the Word of God, where he uh, prepared himself through a study of the, of, of the Old Testament during his time prior to his appearance. Now, when he begins to appear on the scene and he's proclaiming his message to turn for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, uh, it gets the attention of everybody because as we see in the passage, it talks about everybody from the Galilee, everybody from Judea, uh, from Jerusalem are coming out to hear him. And so the uh, religious establishment would send their investigative team out in order to uh, see what was going on and if this had any sort of, of significance. And so these crowds would come out, and those crowds would be composed 
of a variety of different people coming from different different backgrounds. And among them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, this investigative team shows up, and we're told in verse 7 that when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, brood of vipers who warned you to, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, this tells us uh, that among the audience that he's addressing, you have at least one group that is uh, composed of unbelievers. He's not just addressing uh, believers. It's important when we get into this passage, especially verses 10 through 12, that we decide who he's talking to. Is he talking to unbelievers only? Uh, that's our first option. The second option, is he, is he talking to those who are Old Testament saints only, uh, believers only? Now, of a group of believers, there would be those who were obedient, and there would also be those who were disobedient. Uh, disobedient would involve those who'd fallen into some sort of uh, legalism or pagan immorality. So is he just addressing, un, uh, is he addressing just believers of one type or another, or is his address to a mixed audience? And I believe that he's addressing this mixed audience because you have such huge crowds coming from all over that they would include uh, new believers, they would include unbelievers, and they would include the, uh, at this point in verse 7, uh, the religious uh, the religious leaders, and they are further identified as being those who believe in verse nine that that they that they're already going to be going into the kingdom simply because Abraham is their father. And see, there are a lot of people who mistakenly think that they're going to go to heaven; they're going to have eternal life simply because they have always gone to church or they have all they were brought up in a Christian home or for whatever reason, they think that they're just automatically going to get into heaven and they've never trusted in Christ as Savior. And what we see here is there's a specific message to believe at every era and every generation. And at this particular narrow point in time, the focal point was on John's message. Now, he identifies these Pharisees and Sadducees also as a brood of vipers. And I pointed out last time the word brood literally means offspring, and this would be an allusion to Genesis 3.15, where God had prophesied when uh, he is uh, announcing judgment on uh, the serpent and on Eve and on Adam after their sin. He addresses the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So in, in this statement where John is accusing the Pharisees and Sadducees of being the brood of vipers, he's calling them an offspring of vipers. There's a clear allusion to this, and I think the Scripture is very clear at identifying. So it's the Pharisees and Sadducees who reject Jesus' claim to be Messiah. They are the ones who have him arrested, and they are the ones who are the primary power pushing for his crucifixion. And so they are the ones responsible for his, for his death on the cross. So this is a first hint of their opposition to what God is doing in the ministries of John the Baptist and later in Jesus. Now, we're told that they were coming to uh, his baptism. They were coming to his baptism, and this doesn't mean they were coming to be baptized uh, the Greek preposition there, epi, simply indicates that they were coming out 
uh, to observe coming out um, to a location, uh, and they're, they're coming out to watch, so it doesn't indicate that they're coming for baptism. But when John sees them, he zeroes in on them. Now, if we compare this with Luke, uh, we have this same uh, kind of statement that we have here in, in verse uh, verse 10, talking about or predicting judgment. Um, but it's followed then by the way that, that, um, that John addresses different groups that are present. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us about those groups, but... Because of because of Luke, we know that John is addressing them as in terms of their positive response to his message. He's addressing elements within the crowd, elements within the multitude uh, that are believers. But his address to the Pharisees is addressing them as unbelievers, and that's important for understanding and properly interpreting this this context. He says. In Matthew 3, verse 8, therefore bear fruit, it's a singular noun in the, in the Greek, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now, I pointed out last time, this is important, there are a lot of people who when they read that, what they read, which isn't there, is that if you have truly repented, then you will produce works that are consistent with that. But that's not what he says. You, he says, after you've repented, you have to continue to produce fruit. It's not just a one-shot decision. You have to continue. If you're going, uh, let's say you've gotten on the highway and you're driving to a particular location and you take a wrong turn, then at some point you realize that you're way off course. You have to turn around and go in the correct direction. But you have to continue to go in the correct direction. Just because you've turned around and made that decision one time doesn't mean you stay there. You can still get off track and make many more wrong turns and not get to your destination. Uh, Continuing to go in the same direction would be comparable to things that we've studied in the past, such as continuing to walk by means of the Spirit, continuing to abide in Christ. It's staying focused in fellowship and growing and advancing in your spiritual life. And as a result of that, we know in the church age, God the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. Now, that's not what's going on here. He's simply talking about the fact that they their lives should be consistent with a turning to God. This is clearly supported by the Old Testament passages in Deuteronomy, which in Deuteronomy 28 especially, where God, uh, through Moses, tells the Israelites that if they're going to be blessed by God in the land, then they are going to have to live in obedience to God. And if they're obedient to God, God will bring them agricultural prosperity, he will bring abundance to the land, and they will be blessed. But if they're disobedient, then God will bring judgment upon them. And that is the same idea that 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 um, John has here, that if you're going to turn to God, then your life after that must continue to reinforce that that turning and reinforce that change, living in obedience to God. And then he heads off their objections in verse 9 by saying, And do not think to yourselves, uh, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, John says, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. His point is that physical relationship to Abraham isn't enough for salvation. 
And then we come to an interesting passage, uh, verse 10, 11, and 12. I want to read through these verses, and then we'll uh, figure out what they're talking about. Verse 10, he says, and even now, it's a warning, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, in Israel, there was a, a, an understanding from, from their uh, understanding of the Old Testament that before the kingdom arrived, there would be a purging, there would be a cleansing, there would be a judgment that would come prior to the arrival of the king. We've got a couple of verses to show you here. Uh, one is in Isaiah chapter 4, uh, verse 4. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. This is a clear prediction that before the kingdom comes, there's going to be a time of cleansing and judgment nationally. But I want you to notice in the last phrase that the, the phrase spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. This indicates that that judgment that occurs in Israel prior to the arrival of the kingdom is indicated by burning, which is related to fire. The reason I'm pointing this out is because there, we'll get into in just a minute, there's some discussion and confusion over whether John is talking about two baptisms in verse 11 or one baptism, whether, and, and as you know, I've always taught this is two baptisms and I believe it's two baptisms and this is, uh, indicating a, in, in Isaiah 4 4 that even the Old Testament predicted a judgment of fire just prior to the arrival of the kingdom. And I believe that is what John is talking about and warning his generation about in verses 10 through 12. In um, Jeremiah 33, 15, we read, In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. This is a term referring to the Messiah. We've studied these things in the past where the, the, where the Messiah is referred to as a branch of Jesse coming out of the root or the stump of, of, of Jesse, who is David's father. A branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So judgment will precede the coming, uh, coming of the kingdom. This is also indicated in Daniel 7, 26, and 27. Now, this is important in terms of understanding the order of events because Daniel 7 is speaking of the arrival of the Son of Man who's been given the kingdom by the Father, referred to in that passage as the Ancient of Days. At the conclusion of that, just prior to the establishment of the kingdom, Daniel says in verses 26 and 27, "...but the court shall be seated." And they shall take away his dominion. That's the dominion of the Antichrist. They shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. So there's this judgment that occurs prior to the kingdom. Then, verse 27 says, then the kingdom and dominion. 
So the first judgment, and then following that, the establishment of the kingdom, uh, and this is the messianic kingdom. So when John is addressing this, he is addressing the fact that there is this coming kingdom, that there will be judgment beforehand. So just as the kingdom is imminent, just as the kingdom is near, so would the judgment that preceded it. And so this is what he's describing. Now, one of the questions that we, a couple of questions we have to ask when we try to ascertain the meaning of this is, first of all, is this a detailed analogy uh, where each element, such as the root, the trees, the axe, uh, where each element has some meaning, or is it a general analogy where you look at the whole the, 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 the story as a whole, uh, which is simply depicting a future judgment. Uh, there are those who uh, might come along and say, well, the trees represent one thing, uh, the axe represents something else. But a lot of these, these agricultural-type metaphors that the Lord uses here in a number of other places are, are simply depicting a coming judgment that in agriculture, as a farmer would go out into the fields at the end of the harvest, he would see the plants that were not producing fruit, that were no longer of value, that were worthless, and they would be removed. They would be dug out, and then they would all be gathered together, and they would be thrown into the fire. And I believe that in this verse, what we have is simply a general statement that that which is useless will not go into the kingdom, but will go into judgment. Now, verse 11 and verse 12 are going to each give us more detail, but this isn't the place to come together with the detail. The second interpretive question we have to answer is, does the fire refer to temporal judgment? And there are those who think that this fire refers to the judgment that comes on Israel in A.D. 70, and there is another possibility, and that is, uh, since the church has not been announced yet and there's no indication of, of, of the coming of the church, in fact, Israel's rejection of the Lord has not taken place. So I don't think A.D. 70 is at all in view yet. Uh, it would be uh, completely out of order. Um, could it refer to the day of the Lord? That is, those judgments that are announced in the Old Testament that immediately precede the coming of the kingdom. And I think that's a possibility. But when you look at the next couple of verses, uh, it, it's more likely that this passage, the, the use of fire, is referring to eternal condemnation and eternal judgment that is being cast into the lake of fire. Now, when we look at these verses together, we see that in each verse there is a reference to fire. The way some people piecemeal this section uh, is difficult because the context here is is arguing would argue that that the fire all refers to the same thing that that which is thrown into the fire in verse ten is further developed in verse eleven in terms of the baptism with fire that baptism with fire is then given further clarification in verse twelve when we're told that uh, there's a separation of the wheat from the chaff, and then the chaff is then burned with unquenchable fire. And that particular, um, that particular event is then identified 
in Matthew chapter 13. Hold your place in Matthew 3, and let's turn over to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is a chapter dealing with the king's kingdom uh, parables, and the first parable is the parable of the soils, and the second parable is the parable of the wheat and the tares. I'll read the parable beginning in verse 24, and then following that in verse uh, 36, our Lord uh, tells us and and interprets it for us. Verse 24 reads, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came in and he sowed tares. Tares would be referred to darnel, which is a weed that grows up in the midst of the wheat, and it's difficult to, to discern the difference. And, it, and it's so intertwined with the wheat that you can't pull out the darnel without doing damage to the wheat. So while men slept, his enemy came, sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? And how does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now he gives the explanation in verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So this is related to the message of of Jesus. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, that is, believers. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age. So that refers to the time prior to the coming of of the kingdom. The reapers are the angels. These are the court officers that are sent out from the Supreme Court of Heaven to execute the judgment of heaven. Uh, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. So it's a separation of unbelievers from believers, and they will be cast into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine forth as like sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what we see that the separation of the wheat from the chaff is a picture that uh, is used several times in the Gospels, and it indicates uh, an event that occurs just prior to the establishment of the kingdom. And so that helps us to identify the fact that what John is talking about in a somewhat summary fashion, because I don't think John understood all of the intricacies of these details at this point, he's talking about this end-time judgment, and he's warning that if the Jews do not prepare themselves spiritually, and he's addressing the Pharisees in this particular section, if they do not get right with God in terms of salvation, then they will be... Uh, removed for eternal judgment. 
Now, another thing that comes up here is at the end of verse 11 where um, John says, I'm not worthy, uh, where John says, he, referring to the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Now, grammatically, this could be referred to the same event, but it doesn't have to. Uh, but there are some who take this as uh, fire indicates purification, the Holy Spirit comes to cleanse. Uh, in relation to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all of that is true, but it's more likely because of uh, the fire mention of judgment in 3.10 and 3.12 that these are not to be taken as identical. So the reasons why the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism with fire are not identical is, first of all, the context uses fire three times. The other two indicate a future judgment that's distinct. Second is that the passage develops the concept by stating it first in verse 9, as I've said, adding more information in verse 10, and then more details by the time we get to verse 11. And the third reason is that the apostles refer to the baptism of the Holy Spirit several times in Romans and Galatians and other places, and fire is never mentioned with it. And so this would indicate, again, that these are two distinct and separate uh, separate judgments. And so the Matthew 3.12 passage indicates, uh, this is the strongest indication that this refers to this end-time judgment when at the end of the tribulation, actually it does have a purification factor to it, at the end of the tribulation in judgment, uh, God the Son is going to purify the population of the earth by removing all unbelievers, and they are sent to eventually to the lake of fire. Now, initially they're sent to torments, but they're in, end, uh, their end or final destination is the lake of fire. Now, just a couple of things about Matthew 3.11, where John announces that we will be baptized, uh, that Christ will baptize us with the Holy Spirit in fire. The one who performs the baptism is Jesus. He is the one who will baptize us, and he baptizes us by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, in every other passage, and I've gone through this several times in, in, in minute detail, but in every other passage, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, which says that we are all baptized by one spirit, in English, that could indicate the spirit performs the baptism. But in Greek, if the spirit there is in a, pa- which is in a passive voice construction, the verb is passive. In Greek, the one who performs the action of the verb is indicated by the preposition hupa, not the preposition in. The preposition in always indicates the instrument uh, used to bring about the baptism. And so this becomes clear that God the Son uses God the Holy Spirit to bring about this identification uh, with himself. So it's broken down very simply, and we have a nice uh, comparison here. John says, as for me, I baptize you with water. The instrument that John uses to symbolize cleansing and identification with the new kingdom is is water. And what John compares that to is what Jesus will do in the future is that just as John uses water to symbolize cleansing and identification with the new kingdom, so Jesus will use the Holy Spirit to bring about cleansing in the life of the believer and identification with himself 
in what we call the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and there's only one baptism uh, by the Spirit. This little chart shows how these terms are used in the Gospels. Uh, John baptizes in Matthew 3.11 by water. Water is the instrument that he uses to bring about the new state uh, and identification with the new state of repentance. In Matthew 3.11, Jesus is the one who uses the Holy Spirit, uh, but it doesn't talk about what the new state is that, where there's identification. Uh, there's a similar structure in 1 Corinthians 2, 10, 2, where the Old Testament Jews at the time of the Exodus are said to be baptized by the cloud and by the sea. That's the instrument used to identify them with Moses. Same type of grammatical construction uh, with that preposition ace to so, show the new state. And then in 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's nothing said about who performs the baptism, but it's done by the Spirit, indicating that the Spirit is used to bring about our identification with the body of Christ. So, in this chart, what we see is that John the Baptist uses water to identify the person with repentance. In the same way, Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to identify the person with himself in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is not the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. The language is consistent in all these passages. Jesus is the one who uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with Jesus Christ. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit, by way of a definition, the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit is the work of Christ whereby at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit in the act of regeneration. Remember, we're washed by means of, re, uh, of the Holy Spirit uh, and regeneration, to, and he identifies the believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that we become a new creature in Christ where we have a new life. Now, just, I'm going to skip over some, something I thought I would cover, get to this morning, but I want to go to the end of this in Romans 6.3. What does it mean for us? In Romans 6.3, Paul says, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's an identification with Christ that occurs at the instant of salvation that brings about a new, a new identity for us. This is what Paul says in verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That's not water baptism. That's the spirit baptism, identification with his death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. See, John is saying you need to be baptized. You need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What that means is there needs to be a change, a change that results in a new standard of living and a new way of life because you're not going to get the kingdom if you're not in obedience to the law. In the same way, when uh, we look at Romans 6, what, what Paul is saying is you have to recognize as a believer you've been identified with Christ. You're a new creature in Christ. Your identification with his death, burial, and resurrection has given you a newness of life so that now it is your responsibility to live in light of this new life. Uh, 
You can't continue to live as you did before you were saved because you're no longer that person. You have a new identity. The power of the sin nature has been broken, and you have a new identity and a new capacity to live for him. And so he concludes that section of Romans 6 by saying, Likewise, you also consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. It's the same kind of message as John. There needs to be a change. Now, that change that I'm talking about in Romans 6 isn't a change so you can be saved. It is a change because you understand what happened when you were saved, that you were given a, a, a new life, a new relationship to Christ, you were given a, 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 a new identity as, as not under the tyranny of the sin nature. And because of that, it is now incumbent upon us to live for the Lord and not to live for ourselves or for our sin nature with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today and to be reminded that Throughout the dispensations, there is always a call to believers to walk in obedience to you, that just as Jesus said so many times to his disciples uh, in the Upper Room Discourse, that we demonstrate our love for you by obedience. Obedience is not legalism. It only becomes legalism if we're basing salvation or our spiritual growth upon that as the cause. The reality is that you have given us everything. You've broken the power of the sin nature. You've given us God the Holy Spirit. You've given us your word. And as a result, this is to enable us to live in obedience to you and to demonstrate the power of your grace in our lives. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they might understand that that salvation is not based on doing something. It's not based on changing your life. It's not based on on uh, any form of uh, obedience. It's based on simply trusting in Christ as Savior, believing that he died on the cross for your sins. And the instant you believe in Christ, you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.